the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Many people think of Canada as simply a less populated version of the United States. But even though we share the longest undefended border in the world, Canada and America are actually quite different in some important ways. To help our U.S. listening audience better understand Canada and how our prime minister gets away with so much in comparison with the U.S. president, I've invited my friend Joseph Benamy to be my guest in today's show. A former naval officer, Joseph Benamy is host of the Joseph Benamy Show. He's a respected and entertaining television and radio commentator and public speaker, offering insights on culture, politics, and current affairs from a conservative perspective. Joseph was president of the conservative think tank, Arthur Meehan Institute for Public Affairs from 2008 to 2017. Prior to joining the Meehan Institute, he was executive director of the Institute for Canadian Values, and before that, director of government relations and diplomatic affairs for the well-known Jewish advocacy group, He has served on numerous organizational boards, including the advisory board of Jews Against Anti-Christian Defamation. Joseph was a former policy aide to Stephen Harper, Canada's former conservative prime minister, as well as Stockwell Day, Harper's predecessor as party leader. Joseph served as a consultant speechwriter for several senior executives and political officials. So we've got a great person on to talk about Canadian values, Canadian ideas, Canadian institutions in comparison with Americans. So welcome to the show, Joseph. Thanks. It's great to be here. And I guess I shouldn't start off by asking, should we be all moving to the United States to get away (laughs) from what's going on here in Canada? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And in particular, let's start with how Canada's government differs from the United States. Like, what would you say is the primary difference? I think the biggest difference, Tom, from a policy perspective, is the immense amount of power that our prime minister has um, in comparison, or I should say in contrast to what the president of the United States enjoys on a domestic level. That is to say that once you're the prime minister in Canada, you can do virtually anything you want if you have a majority government. We don't have the kinds of constitutional checks and balances that you see in the United States, and our executive branch is completely embedded in the legislative branch of our government because Mm. the prime minister is a member of parliament and the entire cabinet, virtually the entire cabinet, comes from members of parliament and members of our senate so once the cabinet decides that they're going to do something they have control over uh how votes are going to go in the house of commons uh except in a minority situation and we're in a minority government now but if you can form coalitions with other political parties like the informal coalition that exists now between the liberal party which is led by our current prime minister justin trudeau and the New Democratic Party, or NDP, which is Canada's Socialist Party, between the two of them, they hold a majority of seats in the House of Commons. And so, you know, as long as the two heads of the parties agree to things, there's there's not much that Parliament can do to restrain 
whatever policies that the prime minister has. So that's really quite interesting because people, you know, you think of the president of the United States being this incredibly powerful figure, and, and that's true. But domestically speaking, there are strict limits. And all you have to do is look at all of the negotiations that were going on over the past two weeks over the debt ceiling in the United States. We would never have that kind of a discussion here in Canada. A, because we don't have a legislated debt ceiling to start with. And B, because, as I say, Parliament is the custodian of the Treasury uh, and Parliament is essentially controlled by the executive branch of our government. So, you know, what, what the Prime Minister says goes in that regard pretty much. So it's kind of like having Joe Biden as a member of the House of Representatives and then him choosing the Secretary of State and Defense and everything else from the House of Representatives. Is that equivalent? It, it's well that that's exactly it except of course constitutionally it doesn't really work out that way in the United States but if if the president was a member of uh, either of Congress uh, whether it's in the Senate or in the House of Representatives uh, and the entire cabinet was also part of that uh, and they basically controlled the voting they, they themselves had a voting block uh within the uh the House of Representatives then, you know, a lot of what you see here in Canada would, would transpire in the United States as well, because you're eliminating that uh, check and balance that exists between the president and, and, and the Congress. And of mm -hmm. course, we, we just don't have that here at all. So, uh, so as I say, when, when the federal government here in Canada gets its, its head into something they have the complete discretion to go ahead and, and move forward with whatever that policy is. And another thing that has an impact on this, Tom, is the fact that uh, we have a, a much less clear distinction between federal powers and state powers um, or provincial powers here in Canada. Our provinces mm -hmm. are analogous to the states in the United States. So what what is clearly a state's uh, responsibility in the United States, may be also a provincial responsibility here in Canada, but those lines are significantly blurred constitutionally. And on top of that, we have this bad habit. The provinces in this country have this bad habit of getting together with the federal government to come up with a national program, whatever it might be. Healthcare is a good example. And even though health is sole jurisdiction of the provinces, when they come together and they form an agreement with the federal government, it's a funding agreement. So essentially, they all agree to certain terms and conditions in order to have access to federal funds, uh, which are significantly you know, required in order to fund health care in the individual provinces. So it's a way of, of reaching agreements uh, on issues, on policies that uh, are fall within the exclusive jurisdiction of provinces. It's a way of getting around that exclusive jurisdiction problem. Uh, you won't really see that in the United States. There's just too much diversity uh, of opinion between the states uh, themselves and then between the states and the federal government. So you're not going to have that kind of unanimous agreement. Here, mm -hmm. we have it on a, a number of issues. Mm -hmm. well, that brings up a couple of interesting points. First of all, concerning the history, I mean, this derives from the British constitutional monarchy, right? I mean... We didn't have a revolution, so we didn't break away from the U.S. We didn't do a reset. So this originates, I guess, with the British approach. Is that right? 
It does. The you know a lot. There's a lot of of parallel between the uh, Westminster system of Parliament, which is what the British use and what we have here in Canada, and the American system, except that, as I said, we just don't have those same clear divisions of power um, uh, where, you know, you just can't cross them because of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're, you're, you're quite right. I mean, that we our, our system is, is a Westminster parliamentary system. We inherit it from Great Britain. And uh, I don't really see that there's a whole big reason to change it. I know that everybody talks about parliamentary reform from time to time. It becomes an issue here in Canada. But frankly, you know, whenever they talk about parliamentary reform, they talk about how we elect our individual uh, members of parliament. Should we have first past the post? Or should we have proportional representation? Or should we have a directly elected Senate, which we do not? Um, at the, currently. So every time they talk about parliamentary reform here, it always revolves around these issues. I happen to be one of those people that thinks that if you're going to have parliamentary reform, actually, really, the smartest thing we could do would be to find some way of separating our executive from our legislative branches of governments that we actually have that parliamentary check and balance, which historically was there. Uh, people forget that parliament evolved over many centuries as a check on executive government. It's, mm-hmm. it's only in the last couple of hundred years that the executive branch of government has become so deeply embedded in the, in Parliament, largely because, you know, people said, well, why should the king rule or, or the queen rule? Uh, we should have, uh, we, we live in a democracy or we, we developed our democratic values. So it kind of was a, was a hybrid system that, that just has evolved into the way it is now. And it's got its good points and its bad points. There's no question about that. But it is significantly, in that respect, very different from the United States system of government. The other uh, item, Tom, that I think is interesting is that we don't actually directly elect our prime minister. I was on a podcast down in Florida earlier this week, and they were asking me, the host was asking me about that particular problem. Uh, How is it that you can have an unpopular prime minister getting majority governments all the time and my answer is because nobody elects the prime minister. The prime minister just happens to be the leader of the political party that gains the most seats in the House of Commons in a general election. Uh, and so we don't elect the prime minister. So you could have a deeply unpopular prime minister, theoretically, and he could still be the head of the uh, of uh, the leader of the country, not officially head of state. That The crown is the head of state here because we're a constitutional monarchy. But... Uh, but that's how you end up getting a prime minister like Justin Trudeau, who is not particularly popular, but he doesn't have to face the electorate the same way somebody running for president in the United States does. Mm-hmm. Um, he just all he has to do is win his own seat because he is an individual member of parliament uh, and his party has to win the most number of seats across the country. Mm-hmm. That's all you have to do to become the prime minister. Mm-hmm. And I understand that he doesn't necessarily even have to hold a seat because I remember back when, um, let's see, John Turner was first appointed prime minister. He basically he was sitting on a beach in Florida and the Liberal Party called him up and said, hey, uh, would you like to be prime minister? And so he was. And he sat apparently in the visitors gallery for a while before he got a seat. So you don't actually even have to be uh, elected by anybody except your own party. That to be is, prime minister. Yeah, that is correct. It's it's rare. Um, and as a practical matter, it's something that we don't want to happen. But 
it can happen certainly on a temporary basis where somebody will run for the leadership of a political party. And if that political party happens to be the governing party, when the individual is elected leader of that party, then irrespective of whether they're in parliament or not, um, the uh, they become the prime minister. Mm. Uh, a good example, Brian Mulroney. When Brian Mulroney became the leader of the Conservative Party, he was not a member of parliament. Uh, now, he wasn't, the Conservatives were not in office at the time, so he he didn't automatically become prime minister, but he could have. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are, you know, some of the idiosyncrasies of the Canadian political system uh, that make how we deal with government policies that we disagree with or how we try to get implemented policy initiatives that we do want makes it significantly different in many ways than what you would experience in the United States. Mm -hmm. It strikes me then that the founding fathers wanted a system where they had these three parts of government so that they could actually have a check and balance on each other. But Canada just doesn't have that check and balance. Is that right? Right. Well, we we didn't sit down and write a constitution. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, the founding fathers in the United States um, had the, uh, the, the, the good opportunity to sit down and say, okay, how do we govern ourselves? And these were um, uh, intelligent, educated men uh, who took this subject very seriously and debated and and uh, argued, uh, etc. And, and it took years. It took years, remember. They didn't just come up with a constitution at the time of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I don't have to tell your American listeners about this. They, they already know. Hopefully, they already know. I know that History is not uh, uh, something that is well taught in any school at any level these days in Canada or the United States. But but this was a, a goal of the American founders. Now, we, we didn't have the same situation. We did not have a revolution. We did not sit down and say, okay, how are we going to structure our government? Uh, when Canada became independent, quote unquote, because it wasn't totally independent uh, in 1867, uh, it was a, an act of the British Parliament um, mm-hmm. uh, because Canada was part of the British Empire. So Canada's original constitution was the British North America Act, which is an act of the British Parliament. And many of the traditions that we practice in Parliament and in our political system aren't even written rules. They're just traditions and, and, and conventions that we've inherited from our mother parliament, which was in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, over time, we've developed certain uniquely Canadian things, uh, and uh, we've entrenched them in our constitution. We now have much more of a written constitution. Um, we have our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which was incorporated into the constitution in 1982 uh, when we people like to talk about repatriating the constitution. It wasn't really repatriating it. It never was a Canadian document. It was a British document. We so we patriated the Constitution 1982 and included mm-hmm. the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which was a profoundly influential, impactful um, uh, addition to our Constitution that we're still feeling the effects of uh, now. What is it? Uh, Forty one years later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I'd like to touch on the business of the Senate. Of course, in sure. the United States, they're elected, and you know they have two for every state, et cetera. But in Canada, they're appointed by the prime minister, aren't they? Well, officially, they're appointed by the crown uh, mm-hmm. on the advice of the prime minister of the day. 
Um, and so they're not directly elected. But I, Tom, like to think that they're indirectly elected. There are many boards, uh, etc., that are not elected. Judges, for instance, okay, are appointed by the government of the day. Uh, uh, members of other quasi-judicial boards, um, uh, regulation boards, etc. The Senate, our Senate is not directly elected, but it is appointed on the advice of the Prime Minister, who is, or the government of the day that is elected. So mm-hmm. it's I it, it's, it's not really accurate to say our Senate is not elected. It's it's just more accurate to say it's not directly elected. And of mm-hmm. course, once you're a senator, you used to be a senator for life, but now you're a senator until you have mandatory retirement at 75 years old. Mm-hmm. So so once you're in the Senate, you don't have to go through the business of getting uh, re-elected every so many years. Uh, and that brings with it good things and it brings with it bad things. The The bad thing when you're always going to hear people say, and that is that, well, if I have a conservative government, but for years the liberals have been in power and they've been putting into place liberal senators, so now I have a Senate that's going to constantly reject what the House of Commons is controlled by the Conservatives wants to do, mm-hmm. uh, and or or vice versa. And people will look at that and they'll say that's a bad thing. I look at that and I go, well, I can see the problem. It's a valid uh, argument. But on the other hand, sometimes, you know, you get a runaway uh, mob type of election. Uh, and it's not such a bad thing that you have a Senate that, is able to exercise some kind of restraint. Uh, call it, call it, you know, uh, hitting to- uh, not so much hitting the pause button as maybe tapping on the brake from time to time. And mm-hmm. what you have to remember about yeah. our Senate, also, Tom, is that senators in this country understand that they're not directly elected, and they understand that they have to react to the changes that are occurring that are reflected in whoever happens to be elected, whatever government, whatever party happens to form the government. So as a rule, the Senate doesn't actually block House of Commons legislation. From Mm -hmm. time to time, it might send it back with amendments, but the House of Commons then will look at it, they'll accept the amendments, or they will reject the amendments and send it back. And when they do that, Almost invariably, the Senate says, okay, well, we don't necessarily like this, but, you know, we've had our say and we're going to pass it. So mm-hmm. it, it it really doesn't, they really don't block the democratic will of the people. They're, they're kind of uh, an unintentional check on the runaway mob mentality that can exist uh, within a democratic country. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's kind of like a unique our own sort of unique kind of check and balance, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily intended to be that way, but that's kind of the way it's worked out. Yeah. Well, I've seen a couple of examples that are one good, the other not good. And I'm hoping you can comment on it. One of them was Nancy Green Rain, who was the Canadian female athlete of the century. She won gold medals in the Olympics uh, in downhill skiing. She's a wonderful lady. And she brought in actually climate experts to actually investigate the other side of the climate issue. And she was able to do that, of course, because she didn't have to face the electorate. And so that actually is a good thing. But at the same time, uh, first of all, can you comment on that? I mean, that sounds like 
a strength of the Senate, the fact that they can do things that may be politically incorrect, but are good for the country. I, I have a good I have a good friend um, uh, that uh, that used to say two things about the Senate. Uh, the first was uh, because people from time to time complain about their senators and they complain about how it's not an elected body, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and he used to say, well, you know, if you want better senators, I have a solution to that. Uh, appoint better senators. So that yeah. was the first thing. <laughs> Um, and the second thing he liked to say is that a funny thing happens on the, on the way to the Senate. These guys actually sort of become serious, uh, and uh, and 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 irrespective of their political affiliation, uh, they tend to take their job seriously and from a far less partisan point of view than they might otherwise if they were in the House of Commons or if they had to face election from time to time because elections are all about you know partisan politics mm -hmm. and so if you don't have to face the public every three or four years to get reelected, uh, then you know you take that off the table and senators generally go okay well i'm i i think i'm going to follow this uh, uh this and you know you you can't kick me out of the senate right you mm -hmm. can kick me out of a caucus if, if i happen to belong to the liberal caucus and you don't like what I'm doing, well, okay, you can kick me out of the Liberal caucus, but you can't kick me out of the Senate. So mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I'm going to what I want to do. And so there is a certain element of independent um analysis that goes on in the Senate that is uh I regret not really well understood or appreciated even by Canadians. Mm -hmm. Uh but here's like the it. thing. I, I will yeah. just say this one final comment on it, really, and that is that you know, whatever your electoral system is, there are going to be pros and cons. Uh, and uh, there is no such thing as a perfect electoral system. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is the way we do it here in Canada. It works well for us generally. Uh, and uh, and so I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of Senate reform. Mm -hmm. Now, one bill that went forward to the Senate, which the Senate actually amended significantly and then sent back to the House of Commons, was C-11. And some people who were opposed to it called it the Internet Censorship Bill. But, you know, when the Liberals didn't like it in the House of Commons, they didn't like the comments from the Senate. They just pushed it back to them. So was that exercise perhaps pointless or did it result in any changes that you're aware of? Uh, there, there were some minor modif minor modifications I, that were adopted uh i understand uh but essentially the bill went back to the senate uh and uh and it 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 just got pushed through mm -hmm. uh, so and and now of course c11 is law in canada but again you know I, my recommendation is that people shouldn't panic about it uh it's it's not really an internet censorship bill uh per se what it is, is it's a bill that proposes to bring the internet, bring internet content under the auspices of the CRTC, the Canadian Radio and Television Commission, which is like the FAA in the States that regulates content. But it's not so much conservative versus liberal content. It's really Canadian content versus non-Canadian content. Now, of mm -hmm. course, I'm not defending C11, and I, I, I'm making that point because for your Canadian listeners, Tom, um, uh, they're going to go all up in arms and they're going to go that Ben and me again defending liberal policy. And I, <laughs> I'm really not. 
quite the contrary. What I would say is that that's the real problem with C11 is that it's a continuation of uh, a whole series of government regulations and policies that govern what you watch on television, what you read in newspapers, and what you listen to on the radio. So C11 is absolutely nothing new. And if, as a conservative, I wish that we would get together and find a way to remove the government altogether from its oversight of content uh, through the media. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, is the far more important thing to do. But I, for whatever reason, I can't seem to get too many people to really understand how bad the situation is. Like, mm-hmm. when you in Canada, when you listen to music on the radio, okay, you don't realize that the music you're listening to is approved by the federal government. Huh. Okay. Wow. It's it's if you're a country music station and you want to pay the play the most popular country music, and it just so happens that the most popular country music is coming from the United States, then you're in trouble because you can't. You can <laughs> play popular American country music, but you also have to play, play a proportion of country music that is produced here in Canada. It's called Canadian content. Uh-huh. And it may be crappy music, but nobody cares. Okay. <laughs> and and so you you have to play it and you have to pay producers for the right to pay it. So in in a, in a way it's kind of a scam when you think about it. But yeah. the main takeaway, the main takeaway is Canadians, even Canadians don't realize how much control the bureaucrats have over their entire cultural uh, industry, whether it's radio, television, newspapers, um, cable TV, uh, even the books you read, the Canadian books you read. Very few authors in Canada will uh, write a book as a commercial venture, get it published, and make money. Usually what you do is you submit a chapter, an outline, and maybe a chapter or two of your book idea to uh, a board that will approve it if you if they like it uh, and uh, and write you a check, a grant, um, uh, uh, in order to finance your uh, writing of this book. Uh, and then and then there are all kinds of incentives for uh that the Canadian taxpayer pays uh for uh magazine publications book publications etc and they all have to meet certain standards um <laughs> and it's not these are not written rules I, I could tell you when it comes to writing if you're an author uh if you're a conservative author there's no way that you'll get approved Okay. Oh, wow. It's it it just it will not happen. There's no rule that says that, but the people who control the purse spring, the purse strings, sorry, uh are there they are all lefties. Um they will Margaret Atwood, okay, is a successful Canadian writer. She has no need for Canadian taxpayers to subsidize her writing, but she will get grants in order to write books like The Handmaid's Tale. Oh yeah. Okay, but if you're a conservative, if you're Ezra Levant and you want to write a book about uh, ethical oil coming from Canada, okay, great book, but you're not going to get a grant or any assistance from from any of the bodies that control the the, the purse strings. Um, uh, and so 
you know, when you think about it, it's, it, it, it's, it's not, it's not incipient 1984. We're there already. (laughs) Like we're, we're, we, and and for years it's been this way, Tom. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we started out, you know, trying to explain to Americans how things work in Canada and, and you've, you've sort of pulled me into the vortex where now I'm starting <laughs> to say, Canadians, wake up. What is it with yeah. you guys? Now, now, in fairness, the influence is, is not really that malevolent historically. But we're entering a period of time now where things have accelerated, where ideologies have become so twisted uh, out of shape, economic, uh, social policy, etc., that I have very real concern now about how malevolent the influence of these boards and these these elites and bureaucrats are going to be on shaping the culture of this country moving forward. And mm-hmm. why what Americans need to understand about this is that a lot of what you feel threatened about in the United States is incubated here in Canada. It's already okay. here. Yeah, I mean it's it's we had same sex marriage long before you guys were talking about it. Uh, and uh, and now, of course, the big thing that we have in this country is euthanasia, euphemistically referred to as medical assistance in dying. Of course, there's nothing medical when a doctor gives you an injection to kill you. Medicine is about healing people. So just because it's, <laughs> yeah. just because the guy happens to be a doctor and have a, a white lab coat when they give you the injection, um, uh, you know, it, it doesn't doesn't make it medical medical or medicine. It's, yeah. it's it's youth, euthanasia completely 100% and that started out as a medical uh, euphemistically as a medical procedure but now we're talking about in this country euthanizing people who have trouble making their rent and mm. there are there are court decisions in place in order to compel the federal government to change the legislation to allow that kind of thing um and they've they put putting it off they just passed uh, this past March a piece of legislation delaying the implementation of that court order uh, for a year until next March, but it's coming. And if it's going to happen here, it's going to happen in the United States. Now, who would have thought of this even 20 years ago, Tom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these are major concerns. Uh, it's yeah. it's it's not an us versus uh, them type of thing. It's not a conservative versus liberal. It's not... Uh, Democrat versus Republican, we are in a fight for the very heart and soul of our culture and our civilization and Western civilization today. And mm-hmm. and the majority of people just don't know. They don't understand that. Yeah. I, I, I want to keep going, but we have to do, go for a break. <laughs> so my guest today has been Joseph Benamy, and he is a leading conservative commentator in Canada. And we'll be right back after the break. I'd like to remind our listening audience that we rely on donations to keep our show running. We hope that you'll consider donating at icsc-climate.com. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. 
Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer, This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com, seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Outloud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. My guest today is Joseph Fennemi, a leading conservative commentator in Canada. And we've been talking about some of the, oh, wow, threats that our current system of government and the way things are approved in Canada, that it's actually bringing about in Canada. And and yeah, it's a very serious preview, I guess you could say, for the United States as to what's coming there. Would you say that's true, Joseph? I think that to a large extent that that is accurate. Um, Generally speaking, what we do here uh, ends up happening down in the United States, not not as uniformly as it might 
happen because you still have individual states and states' rights and constitutional divisions. Here in Canada, once the federal government decides it's a policy, you know, it just sweeps right across Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, Tom, uh, uh, just before the break, we were just talking about, uh, uh, you know, 1984 is here and how bad things are. Here's another, we were talking about assisted suicide, but here's another thing that just happened uh, this past January 1st the Brit- in British Columbia. The uh, federal government granted the British Columbia government a waiver uh, with respect to the enforcement, the criminal enforcement of laws against drug possession all drugs so mm-hmm. if, if, if as long as you if you're stopped and you have in your possession a certain amount of cocaine it's not a crime in british columbia anymore uh they have uh quantity restrictions so you can only have so much it's got to be for personal use and they have age restrictions but but other than that um yeah, they there's no there are no rules now against uh having and using drugs in british columbia now mm-hmm. not to be outdone the city of toronto has a- applied for the same waiver not, not the province of ontario the city of toronto applied for the same waiver as the british columbia government obtained at the same time that the bc government applied but they didn't get it or they haven't gotten it yet it's still pending and this past march the the city government in toronto amended their application to do away with any proposed restrictions on quantity or age oh wow now for the life of me i have been asking because we're in the middle of a a mayoral mayoralty by-election in toronto and i've been calling out citizens of toronto and saying make this an election issue you do not want this to happen in toronto Mm-hmm. Of course, if it's happened in BC, ultimately this this is they're just preparing the way. Now it's going to happen in the other provinces, and if it's going to happen here, it's going to happen in the United States. And of course, uh, the the ramification of this, and we're just now starting to see this in the media, is in British Columbia uh, between April 2023, in comparison with April 2022, there was a 27 percent increase in the number of deaths attributed to. Are you ready for this? Not okay. dangerous drugs, unregulated toxic drugs. Oh, now, okay. what does that say to you? Because to me, it says when you start talking about the problem that it's unregulated drugs, that's just all they're doing is they're preparing the groundwork for now. The same thing that we did with marijuana. We're going to legalize these things and we're going to regulate them. We're going to license production. And now all of a sudden, not only will your government be in the business of selling marijuana, but they're going to be the the not just the main drug pusher in your country in Canada, but the exclusive drug pusher. And wow. if you think, and if you think that your lefties in the United States, pardon for me for using a, a, an otherwise derogatory term, but if you think that the left in the United States isn't taking notice, and they are going to look at the results here in Canada. And they will twist the data around in order to demonstrate to unsuspecting, uneducated uh, people, and I mean that only in the nicest way, 
um, uh, it's, it's easy to pull the wool over people's eyes when you start citing statistics and cherry picking them. And that's what's going to happen. And you're going to have in more of the left wing states in the United States, the same thing is going to happen there. You're going to have euthanasia. You're going to have free drugs, legal drugs uh, supplied by the government, Oof. which, by the way, is you and me. It's mm-hmm. taxpayers. It's just remember that it's 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 not the government doesn't have their own money. It's 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 my money and it's your money and it's the money out of the pockets of everybody who's listening to your show, Tom. Yeah. So what's the incentive? Is it the tax money that they will get as a result of being the primary drug pusher? Or is it just some sort of concept of some weird concept of freedom to do anything? Well, I think that's a great question. And honestly, I, I actually think it's the latter. Mm. I think I think that what we're seeing now is the inevitable result of the internal contradictions philosophical contradictions in the enlightenment the Mm. whole idea that everything is about human reason Uh, and you know a hundred years ago you know we could celebrate everything being about human reason uh, but there were certain philosophical premises that continued to hold sway in our society and and not just a hundred years ago 50 years ago 20 years ago uh, but as people have become less and less religious, they don't go to church, uh, they've abandoned the idea of of, of uh, enduring principles that exist beyond our immediate understanding of them simply because they are. Um, and uh, and so this is what's happening. And, and I think that that's part of what's fueling the whole trans movement is that, mm-hmm. you know, if 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 freedom of choice is everything, if it's all about freedom, okay, then if science gives me the opportunity to be free of my own natural self, why shouldn't yeah. I have the right to make that choice? I mean, isn't that ultimately what the Enlightenment is all about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, take, t- taken to extremes, it starts to become destructive of your basic underlying foundation for the society. Yeah, yeah, and so this is I I I think that what we're in now is we're start, we're beginning to see the collapse of the Enlightenment. It's it's caving in on its own as a result of its own internal contradictions. And mm-hmm. That's a broader subject, you know, that you have to delve into it with a little more detail and, and thought than what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. But as I, I I mentioned to these guys down in this podcast in Florida earlier this week, I said, you know, I, I feel almost like we're our culture is in a potentially in a death spiral, um, uh, and 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 it's 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 that it's that bad, Tom. It's that dangerous because mm-hmm. we're picking up uh, uh, as a as a former Air Force officer. You 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 know the the um, for all of you pilots out there uh, uh, that are listening. Okay, um, a spin in your private air- airplane is not that big a deal okay mm-hmm. because you can control a spin you can come out of a spin in most aircraft if you know what you're doing but if you're in a in a spiral dive that's a whole different kettle of fish mm-hmm. and i feel like that's almost where we're, we're on the tipping point of this this spiral dive of our civilization mm-hmm. um and and unfortunately our our leaders are are not dealing with the issues as as strongly and as precisely as I think that they need to be. 
Mm-hmm. That's well, was, on both sides of the border. So, Joseph, is it possible that the Enlightenment thinkers didn't foresee a time when there would be no bedrock values, there'd be no religion, there'd be no sort of fundamental ideologies that were accepted without question? Is it possible that they didn't sort of they didn't foresee a time when we actually have what we have today? I, I think that that's a, a large part of it. I think that they couldn't conceive of a time when we would actually be celebrating the euthanization of people who are depressed and, mm. and they're, they, they just don't want to face life. And, and not, only, not only are we doing it because we think it's right, and that would never have happened two or 300 years ago, but mm-hmm. not only, but, but we're paying for it. We're forcing taxpayers to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Look, every culture has its, its, its set of foundational premises. Uh, and I would say this, you know, if, if you want to go back to the, uh, the founding fathers, if you want to use that term of the enlightenment. Okay. But even the founding fathers of the United States. Okay. Yeah. And and the emphasis that the Constitution in the United States and Americans put on liberty, okay. And I, I I'm not being critical of that. That I think it's extremely important. But let me ask this simple question: What empirical evidence do you have that suggests that liberty, that a free society, is better than any other society? Mm-hmm. It all depends on on your subjective criteria on what makes a good society good. And so, so if you think that equality is the most important thing, then that's what you're going to push for. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't make an empirical argument in favor of liberty. It's a philosophical premise. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's something that we bring to the table, and we say this is part and parcel of of what we believe in, and our society our culture is constructed on this of course and i'm just using liberty and it's more complicated than that but there 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 are foundational assumptions that at the at the base of our culture and our civilization mm-hmm. that that we it's not that we reject them it's that we we've rejected the the idea that there's such a thing as immutable principles Mm-hmm. And, and that they're central to our culture. And mm-hmm. so it's like we all of a sudden we're in a situation where we can literally tear down our culture and try to rebuild it. Okay. Well, that didn't, that to a certain degree, that worked out for the Americans. Okay. For your friends in the, in, in our listeners in the States. But I would, I would point out that the revolution in the United States was not a liberal event. It was a conservative event because what, what the founding fathers were really fighting for, other than constitutional change and a separation from the monarchy, what they were really fighting for was a restoration of the traditional liberties that were theirs by inheritance because they were living in British colonies. And that's what men and women in Britain had. They inherited mm-hmm. this, okay? So it was a restoration of, of of something that had already existed that had, they had moved away from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's so it's they, a they they wanted to have the same rights as a British citizen, you know, no representation, uh, sorry, no taxation without representation, things like that. So exactly. they were actually, 
they were trying to have nothing more or less than yeah. what British citizens had. I, I, that's exactly correct. So to a large degree, um, uh, you know, the, the, I say this to my friends in the United States all the time. Um, uh, you know, you guys didn't invent liberty. Um, you, liberty, the idea of individual freedom is, is, is a British, um, English, uh, conservative idea that you, that America inherited, uh, but the government at the time moved away from it. And the revolution really ultimately was nothing more than a restoration of that, along with the constitutional changes that, that were, were implemented. But here's the thing that I fear the most, and, and people who think about this ought to be thinking about, is that uh, not every revolution ends up as positively as it did in the United States. And all we have to do is look at the French Revolution, where where nothing was sacred, nothing was assumed to be enduring, and everything was society was a tabula rasa to be reconstituted according to reason. Uh, mm. And you know where did that end up? Well, mm -hmm. you know it's that's well, a subject for a whole other show. <laughs> Yeah, I know that one of the things they did after the French Revolution, which is pretty wild, is they completely redefined time and space. For example, I believe they had 10-hour days. It was like a metric time measurement. Correct. And they yeah, they had a new calendar, a new clock, a new, new everything. Yes, everything, everything based on tens and hundreds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I have so many other questions, but I wanted to drill down because, you know, sure. a lot of conservatives listening to this might say, oh, my God, I'm just going to give up. This is terrible. Death spiral, all that. But, you know, I look at a group like Action for Canada and, you know, I had them on the show actually a few weeks ago and they're standing up for traditional conservative values. And it strikes me that those groups are more important now than ever. They are. Uh, the, the, I, this is this is the thing I. I, I tell people, Tom, uh, I, you have to fight back uh, at every level, at all times. Mm -hmm. You have to fight back. You, you, you may not win. We may not win this battle. I can't guarantee you that we'll win. What I can guarantee you is that if we don't fight back, we're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and so we are we are in a battle today more than ever for the heart and soul of our culture and our civilization. Uh, and, and the only way that we're going to reverse this is for men and women of goodwill and solid principles to be courageous and to say thus far and no further. And whether you're doing that in your local school board, or if you're a student and you're doing it in your school or your college, or you're somebody at work, and you see and hear something going on, or hey, if you're if you're a woman and you're in a change room at your local swimming pool and some guys invade it, okay, yeah. make a ruckus out of it. Mm -hmm. Don't don't take it don't take it line. And not everything has to be political. Of course, mm -hmm. you can't ignore the politics. You can't ignore dealing working within government as well. You can't ignore any of that. People have to get engaged. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that conservatives who were previously in charge, you know, when Saul Alinsky wrote his book, uh, Rules for Radicals, back in 1981, sorry, 1971, essentially the conservatives were in charge. And Alinsky wrote his book, he said, 
for people who are on the outside who want to be on the inside. Well, now that the roles are reversed and the left are running our institutions, it, it strikes me that perhaps conservatives became too comfortable. And as a consequence, they are accepting things that they would never accept, you know, if you go back a hundred years. So I would think that one of the key ingredients here is that they recognize that they're gonna be a, a lot more uncomfortable if they just simply sit back and do nothing. And that they have to get out of this kind of, oh, well, we have to be polite. We have to follow the rules. We have to, you know, we can't interrupt, you know? So it strikes me that the left got to where they are largely because they were not afraid, because they spoke out, because they demonstrated. And have conservatives become a little too comfortable? Maybe they need to be more outspoken and aggressive. Well, I don't know that you have to be more aggressive, but you definitely have to be engaged in in the debate. Uh, that's the great thing about democracy. It's that's the the great thing, and it's the the awful thing. When mm -hmm. you live in a democrat in a, in a democracy, you are the government. The people are the government, and you may have situations from time to time when the uh, bureaucracy usurps that power. But you know there are two. There are two sides to uh, to that usurpation. Mm -hmm. There's the people who are usurping, and then there's the people who are um, basically conceding the the usurping, and mm -hmm. and that's that's really the problem right now. The problem is that there are too many people that know better that are just they're 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 overwhelmed maybe. And my answer to them is, don't worry about it. Okay, there are people mm -hmm. out there that are fighting. In the United States, they're fighting at congressional level. They're fighting at the state, in state politics. They're fighting in local municipal politics. If that's not your cup of tea, get involved in your local school board. And if that's not your cup of tea, your PTA or whatever, mm -hmm. okay, or send, or send letters to the editor, call into talk radio, <laughs> what what whatever, okay, do fight back at the level that you're the most comfortable at, and you know. It's like this. You, you can't conquer Mount Everest in one shot. You have to do it one bite at a time, one stage at a time. So mm -hmm. if each of us just look after what's going on in our own backyards, in our own front yards, okay, around our own homes and in our own day-to-day -day lives, all this other stuff is going to start to look after itself, okay, mm -hmm. because there's a certain aggregating effect to things. The only other thing I would say is this, Tom, and, and this is, you know, I, I don't want to make this about religion per se, okay, uh, but I can't let the occasion pass without also saying to my friends in the United States, and, and, and take it from me as an Orthodox Jew, go to church. Mm. Find a church that espouses fundamental conservative values like family, like community, okay? Not one of these new age churches or whatever. You don't believe in God, that's okay with me. I'm not, this isn't me trying to convert people into Christianity or any other religion. But I am saying this, the blueprint for Western society is the Bible. I'd say that if I was an absolute atheist, which I'm not, but that's it. There's so, you, you, you the, the premises that are at the, basic level, basic foundation of our culture and our civilization are largely biblical premises. Uh, and and I, I, I recommend to people, you know what? Go to church. Mm, and yeah. and when you're and when you're and when your pastor 
is spouting forward this left-wing clap trap, call him or her out on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to end off, because we're sadly we're out of time. We're gonna, will you come back for another interview at some point in the near future? Uh, yes, I, I, I'd really love to, Tom. Um, I, I feel, as you probably noticed, very passionate about these issues. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I'm 60 years old now. Uh, and uh, I've just reached a point in time in my life where I'm going, okay, time time to remove the gloves. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, Joseph, we're unfortunately out of time. Can you give us your website so people can look up and listen to some more of your discussions about these crucially important topics? Sure. It's www.josephbenami, all one word, without the hyphen, dot com. You can check out the podcast. You can check out our new a channel on rumble uh where we we do a daily pod a daily show uh and uh yeah so happy to have you uh, uh check out the website and uh if you want to send me a, an email use a contact form and uh, i do read all my emails yeah excellent and i'll put the link to your show right under the podcast so joseph thanks so much for being on the show today my pleasure okay this is tom harris signing out from the other side of the story I'd like to remind our listening audience that we rely on donations to keep our show running. We hope that you'll consider donating at icsc-climate.com.